0: Welcome to Spooky South Coast Look, I know the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, but it does AM
1: 1420 WBSN presents Spooky South Coast With your hosts Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa
2: Good evening, welcome to Spooky South Coast, Tim Weisberg here, alongside the silent assassin Matt Costa, and science advisor Matt Moniz. We have a terrific program coming up for you tonight, we're going to talk with Nolan Bushnell, who, I guess we can call him the godfather of video games, he is the man who created Pong, Uh, he is the man who founded Atari, he brought video games uh, into the mainstream America, into the... Uh, amusement areas, the bars, and uh, he, he created Chuck E. Cheese Pizza Time Theater. So, I mean, he's he's done so much uh, to get video games into people's homes and, and basically what they are today uh, was a lot of his ideas. He sold he sold Atari in the late 70s and, and went on to other ventures. But we're going to talk with him about some of his new stuff that he has coming out, uh, including something called U-Wink. Which, uh, for those of you who work in the restaurant business, uh, if you're looking for a new investment, they are taking on uh, franchisees right now. Because this is the, the next generation of uh, restaurant and entertainment. So we'll get into that with Nolan a little bit later. But we're also going to talk about you know, the history of video games, how they came about. Uh, we're going to talk about some of the work he did in robotics and, and just different aspects of technology. And just what he thinks about the technological world today. Uh, you know, we, we Matt Costa and myself are big video game fans. I know, Monies that you play, you know, every once in a while. I go over your house and I see Scarface on the big screen. <laughs>
1: yeah. I. you got to remember, I'm a l- little bit older than you guys, but Pong was, you know, the very first game that I got when I was a kid. You know, I just turned 40, so I yeah. was a kid back then. When you, you have it one of on. those
2: home systems that you bought at Sears? Is that? Actually, yeah. Yep. Well, uh, we'll talk with Nolan about that, but... Uh, it seems like these days, um, video games and just general computer technology they go so hand in hand because so much of what we use computers for now uh, has these video game background i mean a Sim- lot
1: of the impetus for the computer engineers that came up and helped develop the computers we have now, their impetus, what were these games back then? Absolutely. They were, they were, the driving idea was to make them better so they could play better games and get better graphics.
2: It was, you know, let's not have to sit there and wait for the for everything to load up and let's try to make things that look a little bit more realistic and uh, but Matt Kost and myself you know we we pay attention to the video game world uh, you know we watch uh, G4 and and we we check out all the latest news coming out of the E3 convention which happened uh, over the last couple of weeks and so we do look into uh, technology as a whole and that's something that we don't really focus enough here on spooky south coast so it's one of the things that we want to talk about is the use of technology whether it's Related to the paranormal. Or the
1: or, misuse of technology.
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, we we just want to focus on... Because it's not something... It's, technology is something that is viewed on other talk programs as uh, something that makes a, a good show topic every once in a while. They don't keep you up to date, try to keep you abreast of the latest info like like we hope to do. I mean, I think that we've kind of shied away from, you know, talking about some of this stuff. I mean, because you know, we talk about the paranormal and there's so much we can talk about all the time. But uh, how technology can change the world for the good or the bad is is something that we need to start focusing on a bit more. Uh, And video games you know, have plenty of good. We've heard about the bad. Our mothers all told us about the bad when we were growing up. You're going to go blind from sitting in front of that thing. You're going to ruin my TV with that. That's the first question I'm going to ask Nolan, I think, when we have him on is, hey, was my mom right? Will Atari ruin my television? Because that's what she always told me.
3: I want to know if it really rots your brain.
2: That it does. It does. it does rot your brain but anything that you do too much will rot your brain um i mean i don't i don't want to cross my nintendo with my atari here but uh, i can just remember the countless lost hours of sleep i had as a as a youth uh, because i used to have to sneak downstairs in the middle of the night to to try to beat mario brothers because i had four siblings so the only time i could get mario brothers to myself was when everybody was asleep
1: Put the TV on mute so nobody could hear you. Oh,
2: I couldn't do that, though. I, I'd always just leave it up just slightly because I, I couldn't do it without that music. You know, the, the music is part of the experience, and that's what made Pong so different than any of the other similar type games now.
1: Uh, the sound effect, yeah.
2: Yeah, I don't know if you've heard the stories, but supposedly um, the idea for Pong was kind of cribbed from another game. Uh, but we'll talk with Nolan about that. We'll get his side of the story. And then in the second hour, we're going to switch gears a little bit. But sticking on the idea of technology and, and how it relates to history, we're going to talk about the Apollo moon landing. The Apollo 11 mission happened 38 years ago yesterday. And we're going to talk about whether or not it actually did occur. I mean, was there an actual landing, a manned mission to the moon? And did Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin step out of the, out of the uh, lunar module and, and walk on the surface of the moon? Or was it all just a big hoax?
1: Well, uh, scary enough, I'm actually old enough to remember watching it on television. As a matter of fact, that's my very first memory. Because my father woke me up, two and a half years old. You know, watch this. This is very, very important. And I remember this to this very day.
2: Well, didn't it happen at like 4 o'clock in the afternoon, Eastern Standard Time?
1: Yeah, but I remember. Oh, uh, I mean, <laughs> oh he was he, zonked two, out napping?
2: <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, I'm... I'm almost 30, and I'm still zonked out at 4 o'clock in the afternoon napping, so I can appreciate that. But now, what what are your recollections of of watching it? I mean, can you remember anything about it?
1: Just sitting on my father's lap, him being very intent that I pay attention to this, the grainy black-and-white image of um, Armstrong coming down the ladder and, you know, stepping on the moon. And, you know, my parents in their exuberation and... uh, it, it was a very big event, I guess, for them, especially, especially for me being able to be there to with them to watch it.
2: And there were—it's kind of like the way I felt uh, the night the Red Sox won the World Series. Uh, my son was actually at a at a babysitter's. He was with my mother-in-law because my wife and I were out earlier that evening. And you know, I felt kind of empty because he wasn't there to share with. Me. I mean, he was only like a couple of months old at the time, but I, I just didn't feel right. I felt like he should have been there you know, watching it with me. Uh, so I can imagine, you know, that was the same idea that your parents had. Yeah. Now, uh, there, was a, there was more missions after that for a couple of years. Uh, do you recall any of those? Yeah, any... I
1: remember all subsequent missions. They and happened actually right, right up until, what, 1975?
2: five? Seventy two I believe. But oh, Yeah. Well, the Russians were still going after that. Yeah. But, I mean, at any point in your memory, I mean, when did you first start hearing the possibility that this could have all been a hoax?
1: Actually, in grade school, really, yeah, uh, there were. Uh, I believe um, late nineteen seventies, like nineteen seventy-eight.
2: Well, your conspiracy mind, anyway, was probably already thinking it, knowing you. <laughs> but it it seems like uh, I mean, I remember when I was a young kid. You know, we were told about what a what a monumental occurrence this was. You know, the, the fact that we landed on the moon, and it was always with the with the caveat, and we beat the Russians to it. Uh, because I was still in in grade school when there still was a Soviet Union. Uh, A lot of our listeners probably don't remember that. And we understood the the significance of that even in the 80s. But then when the Challenger accident happened, uh, all of a sudden we kind of reexamined the whole space race and and the whole quest to further ourselves. But now it's it's back in the limelight because President Bush uh, announced, I think last year or the year before, that they're planning on sending another man mission to the moon by 2015 in preparation of sending a manned mission to Mars. Correct.
1: They're going to be using the moon as a leaping-off point to Mars.
2: See see what their their new technology can handle and, and where they can go. Uh, one thing that I didn't realize is that we had been sending unmanned missions to the moons of other planets in our solar system. Uh, I, I don't know if you've heard much about this, but they sent right. it to... Um, they sent it to... Uh, I can't you have remember. the
1: Cassini spacecraft that yep. went to the... Uh, Moons of, I believe, Saturn,
2: and then they sent another one to Mars. Uh, one of Mars's moons, or several t-
1: Mars moons, and then
2: there's there's talk of sending one to Europa, uh, which is what uh, Jupiter, Jupiter's Jupiter. moon. They're going to send it to Europa with the idea of the giant ice sea that they have there, right. seeing if they can drill into it and find any kind of life living in that water. So I mean, it's it's interesting that we can go, you know, send unmanned missions to these to these moons and get deeper and deeper out there. I mean, how much further do you think man can make it? Uh, How how far can we push this technology? And as cryogenics is becoming more uh, studied and and different ways that they can make it so that you can take these long journeys without adverse effects to the human beings, you know, who knows how far out we can get there. Can we boldly go where no man has gone before? Uh,
1: The way that technology is growing, there's no reason why we can't be reaching other stars in one century. One century from now. If you look what's happened from one century previous up to this point. True. And you know how technology and the way it expands in 100 years' time. We should be, theoretically, if, if this technology curve continues in the way it does, traveling to other star systems.
2: Well, when you think about it, I mean, uh, as of this date, June 21st, 2007, we're not even 100 years of of air flight. Correct. So for there to have been, you know, that great of a leap, and and I, I mean I'm amazed when I look back at some of the space footage of the 1960s and the stuff that was going on, and it, it just blows my mind that it, it was such a risk to take. To and still is. It, but I mean, at least now we know we have some idea of what the atmosphere is like out there. I mean, th- we were sending people out there blind. Really, we could not recreate on Earth exactly what the conditions were going to be, until. They gathered enough data, and until those first, you know, first the monkeys and the dogs, and then the humans went out there and actually experienced it. I mean, how much, uh, how much must Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, been afraid that when they opened up that door, they were just going to something was going to go wrong?
1: The chances for it were astronomical to start with, and And it took a real, a real hero, and I use that word for what it is, because it took a heroic effort to go out there knowing these risks. And to to still st- step beyond that, mm-hmm. and just for just to further us.
2: Not not only could you, not only did you have to have the uh, the fortitude to go up there and do it, but knowing that once you did it, the eyes of the world were on you. And in addition to having to, you know, in addition to having to get over the nerves of getting out there and what could happen, you have to essentially perform because you're making a historic landmark moment. Uh, I mean, we'll get into it definitely in the second hour, but one of the things that I want to I wanna point out is a lot of people think you know, that it, the, the entire moon landing looks staged, and it looks fake, and that's why these rumors have been able to, to keep going over the years because it seems so forced. Well, maybe it seems so forced because they went over countless times exactly what they wanted to do and what they wanted to present to the world because it was such a monumental moment.
1: Well, they, they trained for missions, continuously. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, say it sounded staged and rehearsed, well, yeah. It is a, a rehearsal of a play every time they go through their uh, training missions. Mm-hmm. Everything's all mapped out. Their scripts are choreographed for every mission that we do out in space. It, it's It's the mission plan or the mission protocol. Everything is listed, documented, and you follow step-by-step through it.
2: It's not something that you actually want to uh, be ad-libbing when you're out there because of the danger factor.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: And and we'll talk about some of the the reasons why people think that there's a hoax. Uh, And if you go on to the Internet and look – if you type in, and I did this earlier today, if you type in Apollo 11 moon landing – uh, into the into any search engine, Google, say I use Google, so when you type it into there, the first website is all about the Apollo eleven moon landing, and then the second website that comes out is about the hoax <laughs> and If you go onto to YouTube and you look for Apollo Eleven video, the first video is the documented video that you 'd see on the National Geographic Channel or on nasa 's website of the Apollo eleven moon landing, and then the second video is and almost every video after that is all uh, trying to prove the hoax you know. Uh, you can see the strings, people, as uh, as they said on Friends, so which I didn't know about until I read it on on Wikipedia. So, I'm not a big Friends fan, but apparently that's the big uh, that's the big quote regarding the the moon landing because it it made it into all the YouTube videos that I watched. But anyway, I digress. So the Apollo moon landing is on the table. Uh, we will take your calls 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. zero five hundred five zero eight two nine one zero five hundred. We're hoping to have Nolan Bushnell. Founder of Atari, creator of Pong and pretty much the, the god to myself and Matt Costa. Matt, what what's your earliest video game memory? What what do you remember playing before anything else?
3: Well, I think I remember it was I was playing uh ColecoVision, I believe. I think I was playing baseball.
2: Really? And you, you still have player. an advanced pass yes. that's all you have at home is ColecoVision, I do. right? Uh, what? What?
3: What? I'm sorry. I think it was in television. In television. In television.
2: And, and how old were you? And, and what kind of experience oh, was God. it for
3: you? I don't know. All the younger ages seem to meld together, so I don't really exactly know how old I am. But I do remember I did. Um, I think I'm the earliest recorded case of carpal tunnel because <laughs> yeah. of Space Invaders. Really? Um, yes. Did you like I have to go that. to the doctor and everything? I played that in Laser Blast and Zaxxon. Zaxxon oh. was. Oh, yeah. I couldn't. I, I couldn't I don't even think I could do it now, but it's it's, ama- it's a it's amazing. Hard game. <laughs> we we
2: I actually have like three Atari Twenty Six Hundreds because I, I was able to acquire one via yard sale and and um, our friend Penny Dreadful gave me a box of video games and there was a couple of those in there and and Macos and myself have tried to play them and we can't we can't do it so I don't know if uh, Nolan will answer any questions on on strategy. Mm-hmm. Uh, while we have him on the phone, you know, how to beat the second level of Dig Dug, how to beat the third level of Pitfall. Uh, but, you know, it might be worth talking to him off the air sometime, see if he's got any hints and strategies. I, I mean, I can tell you my first memory of of video game playing. Uh, I actually won a raffle when I was, like, five years old at a flea market. And the grand prize was a Texas Instruments home computer, the T199. And uh, what it was was it was just this little keyboard that you essentially plugged into your computer. Uh, and it had carts that would slide in with games on them. And it, it, I think it had some sort of word processing it, It's somehow because I remember typing onto the screen. Um, I actually have one of those at home too. Uh, I acquired that via yard sale as well. So uh, we could have brought all this stuff in and just been playing with it during the show tonight. But it's it's I remember playing it playing different educational games that my parents bought for me and then they had like Blackjack and Space Invaders and stuff like that that they would play after we went to bed and I remember sneaking out there and and getting the chance to play these games and to me they were just amazing I mean what's so simple today what's on our cell phones uh, is included games now were just revolutionary back then I think I was probably like 10 before I got the first chance to actually play an Atari at somebody's house Um, just because, you know, I didn't know anybody that had one for the millions and millions of people that had them. I didn't know anybody. And, uh, I mean, I had to fight for like three or four years to get a Nintendo because it was just, you know, the price factor. And the fact there was five kids in the family and they knew it wasn't going to go over well. Um, but once I finally turned on Nintendo and played Mario, that was it. It was over. (laughs) And nowadays, I mean, I don't know what you try to play, uh, Religiously, you know, I don't know if there's still any games that, you know, you're you're constantly playing. I mean, I you know, I just got Guitar Hero, and we've been messing oh, yeah. around with that. Uh, just the the remarkable progress in it. I mean,
3: as far as retro games go, or
2: well, no, I mean just in terms of uh, the technology of what you can do. I mean, with Guitar Hero, you are essentially playing the guitar. Sure. Uh, you, I know that you've played yes. games like Final Fantasy in the past, and the cinematic quality and the storytelling quality of these games are. It's def-
3: definitely like a uh, kind of step forward toward a more interactive mm-hmm. experience when it comes to video games nowadays, um, I mean, with Guitar Hero and uh, that Drum Villain game that's coming out. Yeah, and if uh, and if
2: Red Octane wants to send us some test I mean, copies, we'd be happy to promote them. Here. <laughs>
3: Dance Dance Revolution, I mean, look what a craze that was, and that was just a bunch of
2: arrows on a screen. But, but what's the strange thing about video games now? Uh you know, the the funny thing about video games is we wanted to sit down when we were younger and just have mindless entertainment in front of the TV, and we didn't realize that we were you know exercising our brains as well as our hands and, and the strategies that were involved and, and the deduction, deductive reasoning that's involved. Uh, but now look where video games has gone back to. W- what was the biggest complaint about video games when we were younger? You weren't doing anything active. Yep. You were just sitting there on the couch. You weren't doing anything. Now it seems like all the games that are the most popular are the ones where you have to actually get up off your ass and do something. <laughs> you know, look at the Nintendo Wii. I don't even think you can sit down and play the Nintendo Wii.
3: I don't think I could play it for more than five minutes. I, I don't I like d- that idea, to tell you the truth. I don't know I if you've to, seen this movie. My morning. arm goes, no. Yeah, I've seen
2: it. You have to, like, stand there and, and actually <laughs> move.
3: The, the nunchucks. They call them
2: nunchucks. Is that what they're called? The I Wii nunchucks? So. So, I mean, the remember? Wii chucks or something. Do you remember what it was like when you first walked into an arcade, say, and you saw uh, The, the, the burner?
3: The way yeah. you actually get in it and... Well, when you actually the could,
2: could sit yeah. into... The, yeah, I mean, those those were... Yeah, those, yeah spinning around. <laughs> that was ridiculous. I think the first game I ever actually sat inside for was the original Star Wars video game, which I played oh, yeah. at Chuck E. Cheese. Thank you, Nolan Bushnell. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, that one I remember crawling into that long tunnel. I mean, just the evolution of the cabinets, the game cabinets uh, has been ridiculous, but... Remember when you first walked into the arcade, say, about 10 years ago, and they had the skiing game, yep. and you had to actually move your body? And I was like, oh, I it costs like four quarters more than the rest of the games. And I was like, I can't believe I'm actually doing this. This is probably just as hard as real skiing. And that's when it kind of made that shift toward, you know, like you said, Dance Dance Revolution being the, the biggest one. I mean, people actually have to be able to move to play that game.
3: Yeah, to, to actually watch kids do it. Watch uh, kids play Dance Dance Revolution. Have you ever seen it? I've seen it. I've seen kids people that are good at it, at it play. Yeah. Kids do it backwards. They don't even have to look at the screen; they can do it.
2: Well, I mean, not just this tells you that they're from playing too much.
3: Way repetition, but I mean, well, they do handstands.
1: Well, it's spilled over into family things. I, at my sister's <laughs> house, they actually have that pad hooked up to um, with their entertainment system, mm. and they they make a family night out of it. And you know. It, I have to admit, it is quite amusing to watch certain family members try and do it. But
2: <laughs> Well, I mean, we're going to see, uh, my, myself and Matt's generation is definitely going to see a real influx in families playing video games together. I mean, my dad and mom played when I was younger, but not at the levels that Matt and I play now. I mean, I have a, I have a three-year-old son, and he has a VTech Smile system. You know, which is all learning games, but it's it's the same thing of what we talked about. It's the same thing we fought with our parents about. No, you're actually learning something. You're doing something. They have a value. Uh, I don't know what the learning value was of uh, sneaking downstairs to play like Who Framed Roger Rabbit in the middle of the night, but I think I learned how to how to be sneaky. That's probably all that I learned. Now, Matt, when you were in school, uh, you're a couple years younger than me, uh, but when you were in school, how much were computers and computers Computer games and you know the use of computers is prevalent. Because when I was in school, we yeah. didn't even have the internet. Uh, you know, and, and Moniz, we know that you're you're older, so we'll just we're gonna we're gonna just take for granted the fact that you know they had just invented calculators when you graduated high school.
1: Yes, I hated <laughs> to have to retire my abacus.
2: Well, you still use it from time to time. I've seen you with it at the store. <laughs> but um, I mean, when I started in school in the first grade, we had an Apple II. One Apple two for the whole first grade. And we had the logo program where you made the little turtle make the lines. I have no idea what the p- practical application of that <laughs> game is now, uh, of that program. I mean, it, it couldn't do anything except draw straight lines, and you had to tell it everything to do. Uh, but then the, the game that I remember making the big difference was the Oregon Trail. It was like the first game that was an actual game. You could actually have fun doing it. What did you have uh, in your early days?
3: Um, we didn't really actually have a computer till. I got to middle school like sixth or seventh grade. In and, the school? Yeah. Wow. And it was actually it was probably the same Apple II that you had. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I don't think we really played too many games. It was I do remember the Oregon Trail and me getting distemper almost almost every time <laughs> and bri- breaking an axle. I never got to Oregon, but uh, uh, I don't it, think we had to. We what did. about what about programs had, like? Uh, it was one I of mean, those things where you had to sign up and.
2: And you just couldn't be bothered. Yeah, really. yeah. It was,
3: it was, There was thirty kids in the class. If, if, you signed up, you were on the waiting list forever.
2: So. Now, what was uh, what was your first application of a computer in the classroom environment? I know I, one of the first programs I remember using was Bank Street Writer. You know, yeah. or, or a simple word processing program.
3: I believe I th- believe we were uh, taught how to use spreadsheet on the Apple II. Wow,
2: I've never even been taught how to use that. Was it was it uh, was it Visicalc?
3: Um, oh, God. I think it might have been. Oh. But that, that's one of the things <laughs> we'll
2: get into with Nolan if he calls.
3: I, I remember being bored using it because, I mean, how fun is a spreadsheet when you're 12 or 13? Yeah. So, yeah.
2: I mean, what are you going to do with a spreadsheet? Yeah. I mean, you're going to make up math problems to put into it. Uh, but then as we got older, uh, I, I never saw the – I swear, and a lot of people don't believe me when I say this. I never saw – the internet till I was a senior in high school. My first experience on the internet was in uh, was in the computer lab, uh, uh, Miss Abeln's room actually, where she had a laptop that had the internet capability, and she plugged it into the phone jack, and I was able to go onto library websites. Uh, and it looked like it was in DOS, you know, it was like no no HTML, no graphics, nothing. And then um, I, I got to see later on, uh, Mr. Hathaway, he had a he had a computer in his office that had the Internet, and I got to actually go on some websites and actually see, like, search engines, and, and he gave us, like, a little class. So well, when I got to college and I went to the computer labs and they had the Internet there, I was like, hot damn. I mean, I was on every possible website I could possibly think of, and I said, this, it can't get any better than this, and that was 10 years ago. So just look at what the difference is, you know, between the Internet 10 years ago and now. Uh, I mean, Monique, Well, you're
1: looking at, okay, what you're talking about when you were a senior is I'm 10 years older than you. Mm -hmm. So in 1985, roughly when I was out of high school and before that, computer Internet wasn't really available like it is to the public today. I mean, we were were able – we had just gotten the TRS-80s or the Trash-80s, and the very first Apple II actually came into the high school. And it was an old – phone modem that you actually had to put the physical receiver in, you into You put a the sp- phone into the cradle. Right. And we were able to call various town halls and libraries in certain other um, universities.
2: There was a lot of news group stuff. Right. Lot, yeah. It
1: would, yeah. You you had the news wires. You, you could tap into the news wires. You could tap into local municipalities if they were large enough to be connected to this thing to start sure. with in universities, various universities. So, so essentially-
2: uh, when you were using this in in high school and, and having that capability, it had no actual use for you.
1: For me personally, yeah. Other than some databases that were in some of the universities, yeah, I, the, I got limited use out of it. I had more fun trying to hack through certain, shall we say, municipalities <laughs> records and town halls. He lowered. What are the he lowered fir- his yeah. What rate. are the first hackers? Yeah. Thank you.
2: Well, I mean, I I can remember. You know, just being able to to go online uh, at college and look stuff up and and saying, I I can't just imagine, you know, if it could get any better. And then you get the Internet in your house, and then you have it on your cell phone, your PDA, your laptop. and It's just the the, strides that we've made in in the ability to communicate technologically, which leads to a whole other question, which uh, I'll ask after you. I
1: was going to say, the Internet really became... Available to the public in personal computers in say circa 1992 uh, rather, is when the first PCs were really affordable uh, and were starting to be found in other people's homes. 1993 through 95 is when the internet really started to explode,
2: and that was when a lot of the home-based uh, ISPs like AOL and right uh, what what was the other Compuserve yeah. and all these oh, other yeah. uh, options were out there. Which you know before you know you had to kind of know what you were doing, typing in URLs to to be able to find these things, and these these service right. providers made it a little easier. They gave you something else that you could do online correct now you were you're working in the the technological field uh, more or less yeah uh,
1: most most of the laboratories i've worked in have been fairly cutting edge so they've had they 've had access. access to the nets, and most of the laboratories were filled with computers and you know, for me, I grew up with the system, and that was expanded beyond, you know, what anybody's ever expected.
2: Now, uh, I'm just going to throw this question out there too for people. Uh, one of the things that we'll be talking about, if we can get Nolan Bushnell to join, this is why I don't like letting guests call us. I like to have a contact <laughs> number for them. But uh, if if he does call us, we can we can get into this with him later. But Remember when you first got your first Nintendo, and I'm sure, Moniz, you had one at some point, Nintendo and yeah. System. The original, you know, gray and white classic, it's like, I I feel like that, like, you know, like my uncle feels about a 69 GTO. You know, it's a, I get the same type of love and admiration for it. But I remember the first time I, I had one, and I was looking it over, and I flipped it over, and I saw that little plastic box. Well, you know what I'm talking about? The little mm. plastic box that popped out. And it didn't do anything. Nobody knew what it was. And for years, I didn't know what it was. So I'm just going to throw the phone numbers out there. Maybe some, I know what it is now, but maybe somebody, I read a book. That's how I found out. Maybe somebody out there can tell me what that was. Uh, why don't you give us a call? 508-996-0500. 508 500 If you can tell me what that little gray box that snapped out of the bottom of the Nintendo entertainment system was, the Silent Assassin will provide you with a wonderful spooky South Coast bumper sticker.
3: A deluxe bumper
2: sticker. Deluxe yes. bumper sticker. Okay. Excellent.
3: Deluxe so. meaning maybe two. Oh, maybe two. <laughs> you can't beat that.
2: Just for knowing what that little gray box was under the Nintendo. Maybe
3: a couple pens.
2: So, 508.
3: Hey, them pens are actually pretty cool. They are good, they
2: are good pens. Mine is still writing, which is better than I can say for my uh, my other so pens that I get with pr- they, promotional They take a good them.
3: biting because I like to bite my...
2: You do. You bite pen. everything. I do. You're like a beaver. I can't help it. So 508-996-0500, 508 mm-hmm. 500 and uh, we will tell you exactly what that box is coming back. Let's take a quick break, and on the other side, uh, more of us just throwing it around about video games uh, until we are hopefully joined by Nolan Bushnell. Stay tuned for more here on Spooky South Coast.
1: Don't look now, but Spooky South Coast is creeping up behind you right after this. The
0: Atari video computer system is 20 cartridges with
1: 1,300
0: game variations. Discover to play a world beyond your wildest dreams. You can't keep me in here, Atari. Centipede. Tempest. <laughs> and the asteroids. Pong becomes a nationwide phenomenon. Atari.
2: got the Pac-Man fever. You know who would have really appreciated that bumper? Nolan Bushnell. Nolan Bushnell. If only he had been on with us to take care of that. But we're still hoping he'll give us a call. Uh, but you can give us a call. 508-996-0500. 508-291-0500. What impact has video game technology had in your life? I can't believe nobody wants to win that bumper sticker. Maybe they just don't know. They're that stumped about what that little box was in the Nintendo. People know. I think you're right. It took me so long to find out. It just so happened that I found a great, great book. I wish I had brought it with me tonight. It is the one of the most profound books I've ever read. I mean, it changed my life. It, it really is a great book. It's called Game Over, and it's the basically it's the history of Nintendo. It's how they went from being a playing card manufacturing company in Japan to becoming, you know, the most recognizable name in video games. And the book mentions exactly what that piece of equipment is. And this book, by the way, if you if you want to look it up on eBay and try and get yourself a copy of it, the book sells for around fifty dollars now. And just as an aside, I bought it off the counter at one of the local video game stores for a dollar. It was on clearance for a dollar, and now it's sold for fifty bucks on eBay because it's just that profound of a book. Uh, But it said in that book exactly what that little gray box was. Apparently, for those who don't know the history, uh, the Nintendo Entertainment System came to America in 1985. It was actually uh, a changed version of what was known as the Super Famicom, or the Famicom from Japan, which was you know short for Family Computer. Uh, and they started marketing it, I believe, in the early 80s over there, and what it was was it was designed to be a, everything you would need in your home type of system. Uh, and, uh, you know, the old ones, the, the ones that they use in Japan actually loaded in the top, like the Super Nintendo eventually did. Mm. Uh, they put that little stupid slot thing in for America, which, hey, thanks for that. Because uh, <laughs> <laughs> it rendered thousands upon millions of of the Nintendos useless. When didn't the, didn't they
3: have an earlier version that actually ran on uh, three and a half lobbies? Were there? For the, so. the
2: Famicom or for Nintendo? They had,
3: they had like a stand-up version, like
2: a tower. Wow. I, I didn't know that. I'll have to try and see yeah. if I can find one of those on eBay. But the, the original, the, the Famicom that was in use before the Nintendo came here had that top-loading technology. Now, Matt, you've had numerous Nintendo systems. What happens uh, when you have that front-loading cart thing? You,
3: you break it. You yeah. break the spring. <laughs>
2: you break Almost the spring. And what else happens? Because of the way that it's set up, the dirt... And everything and the dust just gets sucked right into that vent and connects on those heads. So everybody out there that has a Nintendo that has the blinking light, I can tell you right now how to fix that. Just take the top off. Take that little thing with the teeth with the little thing where the game connects. Take that out. Order yourself a new gold-plated one online. They don't attract the dust, and uh, you'll have your Nintendo working forever. Anyway, <laughs> moving on. Uh, the I think I, I, got,
3: that, I actually got asthma from blown in, blown yeah. in the cartridge, <laughs> blown inside.
2: <laughs> now then, you pass out, and by the time you woke up, you didn't have any time left to play video games. Uh, but the Famicom actually could go online in 1980, whatever, 81, 82. It could go online, and they had a system set up in Japan where you could do your banking from your house and pay your bills from your house using the Famicom. So when they built the unit in in the United States, when they built the Nintendo Entertainment System, that space where that plastic thing is would have eventually snapped out and you would have plugged in the modem right there to connect your Nintendo to the Internet. And what happened is they just kept progressing the technology and they never bothered to make that part. So by the time they could have made a Nintendo go online... It was already too late, and they already realized, you know, we want to keep this affordable. They were already in the price wars with Sega and then later with Sony, so it never came to fruition. But that that is what that is for. There are people uh, who make modifications for the Nintendo Entertainment System that you can plug in a modem to that spot, and you will actually be able to use your Nintendo to go online. I've seen videos of it on YouTube. It's, <laughs> it's crazy. You can't do anything, but it can connect to an online system. Um,
3: it's one of those cool things for geeks to do. Exactly.
2: And if you do it, hey, send us uh, send us some pictures or some video. Or we'd love to see it. But that is my little history lesson for today of, of what that gray box was for under the Nintendo. Now, Moniz, I'll ask you a question because I know that you've seen the film. The movie Tron.
1: Loved that movie.
2: And that, to me, was one of the first times I would heard anything about an Internet, about some sort of... Being able to use computers. We, we heard about it in movies like Tron, but we didn't know that it was actually possible that you could go online and connect with other computers.
1: Right. It started with the what was known as the ARPANET back mm-hmm. in the uh, early 70s. It was the military uh, closed computer system for communications. And then it was later expanded for u- public use with schools and other municipalities. And then it became what it is today after, you know, a number of years and a former vice president.
2: Well, I was going to say, I've noticed nowhere in there did just say it was created by Al Gore, and I, <laughs> you know, but hey, you know, you need an angle when you're running for the for the big cheese office. Speaking of the big cheese, it'd be nice if the big cheese of E. Cheese called us, buddy. Hey, moving forward, so, but when you first uh, when you first saw something like uh, the Atari come into people's homes, there must have been. A great craze, you know, for people your age being a teenager at that point.
1: Oh yeah, me and my buddy Joe, Sergeant Joe, we that's all we do is hang in his room and play, you know, Frogger and you know, he's the one you really want to talk to yeah. if you want to talk about getting past certain levels. <laughs> Even to this day with some of the stuff that comes out now. Well bear in mind that gets into the other part of what these computer games did. He spent twenty years in the military dealing with the real high-tech computer mm-hmm. games, and that's where they, th- the military really took the applications of the video games there and applied them in a real-life situation as training tools. And now the military pretty much exclusively trains with uh, these type of uh, simulations before they let anybody anywhere near actual physical equipment.
2: Absolutely, and we've seen, you know, A lot of these simulation games, uh, well, these simulation programs that are used in the military and police work uh, and all different various aspects of culture become adapted into video games uh, for entertainment purposes.
1: Yes, it's interesting how they've filtered back and forth.
2: Mm -hmm. Like, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen that game. Uh, We've played it before at at certain arcades. Uh, The police training, I forget what it's called, but it's the one we actually have to roll out of the way with the gun. Time Crisis? No, no, the actual just the police one where, you're, right. where you're a cop, and uh, that is actually the pretty much the same simulation program that the LAPD was using. They just added some you know some sketchier characters and some you know cheesy music. Yeah, more upbeat music and stuff. But essentially, it's the same program. Uh, there's also you know the boxing programs that are based on the same type of thing that they use in gyms to train fighters. Uh, it, it's.
1: Flight simulators.
2: Oh, absolutely. It's become so ingrained in everything that we do that, you know, I I can't even imagine in five, ten years from now, there won't be somebody that uses a quote-unquote video game for some aspect of their life, some sort of training, some sort of recreation. I mean, I I know people who could care less about Nintendo or or PlayStation or any of those games, but they'll have the railroad simulators because they want to just drive a train. They've always wanted to drive a train, and this is their opportunity. Uh, all the way to people who won't play games, but they will play things like The Sims because they're nosy people and it gives them a chance to stick their nose <laughs> in somebody else's life. Or these massive online games where you can communicate with people all over the world. Well, create we your own life. Yeah, well, you can be so, somebody totally different in a video game. That's the other appeal. Is there any simulator programs that you ever got really addicted to, Matt? Was there anything that... Or, um, or even something like The Sims or SimCity? I did play Roller Cards Tycoon
3: for a while. Really? Where Which you build your own
2: a, am- yeah. amusement park. That's about w- it. Was that I mean, just I did uh, play
3: Sims for a little while. I I didn't really get the novelty too much of it, but
2: I felt like I was like sticking my nose yeah. in somebody else's business.
3: Sim City was kinda cool. You could be the mayor. Yeah, in that was Sim. pretty
2: fun. The uh, the only problem I had with it is you had to build the irrigation yeah. systems and all that kind of stuff. That just bored me. You know, it took hours. My wife was excellent at it though. She would literally spend days in front of the Playstation.
3: I recently so, tried to play it again. And uh, I found out that the internal battery in it is dead. So really? in order to uh, keep my city saved, I would have to leave my Nintendo One for life. Wow, well, <laughs> so. I can't imagine
2: that it, it was on Nintendo. Is that what it was? It was on a uh, Super Nintendo. Super Nintendo. Yep. So it had like a like a CMOS battery in, yeah. in the in the cart. That's crazy. So that's ridiculous. I can't believe that. I'm, Needless I'm amazed to say
3: it's still on right now. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm amazed when I can turn on like. Uh, my PlayStation or my Xbox, and it knows what the date is. Yeah. You know, I just I'm like, wow. And that's that's one of the things that's happened is the video game systems that we're using now are very powerful home computers. You know, Xbox is designed uh, to to stay in your living room and be, you know, multi multi use.
1: It goes back to what I said before: the the video game uh, processors and the buses that were used in them were more powerful than the home computers of their day.
2: And getting into what we're going to talk about in the second hour, the Apollo moon landing, the processes we have on our home computers and even in our cell phones. Our watch. Yeah, they're they're more powerful than what they had running the Apollo mission, both in flight and on the ground. Correct. So, I mean, it's amazing. I, I don't know if you ever had the opportunity, Matt, or maybe they were kind of even dinosaurs by this point, but if you ever had the opportunity to ever work with a mainframe or, or be in the room as a mainframe? Yes. And what type of experience was that compared with the way we use computers today?
1: Uh, the former place that my father used to work at had a uh, mainframe, and I remember visiting him as a kid and you going in you, where his office was. He had to go by this room to go into the, and what have you. But uh, walking by it, and it was just these towers of rooms that had air conditioning pouring in and these things pouring out heat. And lots of light and lots of noise. I, remember, I That's just what I remember as a kid. And,
2: and they recorded on tape.
1: Yeah, reel-to-reel tape.
2: And they would print out printouts on, like, you know, like uh, journal tape. Right. And just the limited capabilities. It would take them a half an hour to do a function that a, a computer can do now in the blink of an eye.
1: Well, a lot of it was for um, computer-aided designs or CAD systems, the early CAD systems that they had for their day. It was, that's the type of work my father was involved Well. Not in designing, but the facility was mm-hmm. uh, mainly for designing and developing uh, oceanographic equipment.
2: Now, linking it up to the paranormal, it was one of those type of mainframe computers that was used for the original SpiritCom, wasn't it? One of those big, big yeah. Sons of Guns. Yeah. And so just the processing power that that, that had to have uh, compared with what we could do today, what we use computers for today, you know, the paranormal PC and, and other things like that that we use in. in paranormal research today imagine if uh imagine how much we would have progressed in that field uh, if we'd had microprocessors back at a time when the investigations were really starting to you know in the 70s when you had kind of that boom uh, when people were first willing to to come out and say yes i i investigate the paranormal i mean imagine if ed and lorraine warren had microprocessor power for their investigations back in the 70s
1: that would have been interesting that, although they actually did have some pretty decent equipment back mm-hmm. then to already begin with but was, the 70s really wasn't the first boom of it uh, the the late 1800s started the spiritualist movement uh, there were a lot of people going out and doing old school ghost hunting and there are plenty of books that uh, if you can go delving through some old libraries that people can find on these subjects if you look at you know, spiritualism in, in that particular section, and uh, I can't remember any of the names of the books off the top of my head. But, but I,
2: even so, they were using the technology that was available to them, right? They right. used the, Ouija
1: the, boards and well, Ouija boards and stuff like that. But there, there were other tricks that I don't, I don't want to use the term "tricks" because that implies that there is some sort of deceit going on. Spiritualism the, is ma- all crap. Tell no, me. well, I'm just the, kidding. I'm just kidding. Go ahead. What have you. I'm talking about the methodologies that they would do for ghost hunting back Mm -hmm. in the late 1800s because they didn't have electronic equipment like what we have today. But uh, they still knew that these things, uh, ghosts or spirits or what have you, could affect the present day living where we we exist now or, or they existed back then as the case may be. They knew that they affected objects and things, so one of the things they used to do was sprinkle powder on the floor, and hopes of following a footprint trail. And I've used the same exact method to, you know, uh, recently mm-hmm. in a couple of the cases I'm working on. It's still effective today, as well, well as you know, well. It also helps in two respects. One, you you get to see footprints if the, if there's something there walking around. It'll also show you footprints of, like, mice or whatever running around in the attic, too, which you could also explain. It's, it, it'll give you a definition of, of what's going on either. Is it paranormal or is it something more mundane?
2: Well, it's interesting, too, because we're talking about simulation games and, and video games being used to enhance people's uh, careers and opportunities. There's actually a game coming out, and I'm not sure the specifics of it. It's called Jericho, and it's being put out by Clyde Barker. Uh, he's the, the the brains behind the whole thing. And but what it is, it's about a, a team of paranormal investigators that are working for the government. And so there's different aspects of paranormal investigation in this game. I mean, I don't know how much of it's going to be people running around with guns and uh, you know squirt guns of holy water, or whatever they're going to be doing. But it'd be interesting to see if somebody did develop an actual. Paranormal investigation simulation program, uh, something that would, you know, aside from the, the stuff that they wouldn't want to put in a video game, like you know, actually doing research, reading books and studying and listening to, the, you know, attending lectures from people who have done. Heading it before to you. the
1: old town halls, looking for the records of the house and who lived there, who died there. Yeah, yeah. But in terms
2: there. of in terms of being able to actually like simulate the investigation of a property, uh, registering for cold spots, you know. Taking EMF readings, going through taking baselines, you know, if they could actually incorporate something like that, it, it might actually have a market. Uh, I remember Matt, uh, one of the games, one of the first games that we used to when we first started hanging out playing was Nightmare Creatures, you know, yeah. and it it was a game that was groundbreaking at the time.
3: It was scary. It was. <laughs> it, it was like one of the first games that actually scared me, aside from the uh, Resident Evil games. In
2: Resident Evil Two, another game though that it it had that. Type of you could almost the palpable you knew when something was coming type of thing, and things maybe, that
1: ran on what was called the Doom engine.
2: Yeah, exactly. But the the anticipation of what was coming was something that was unique. I mean, before in video games you didn't really know what was coming as side scroll screens yeah. and all that stuff. And I think that they could probably I, I don't know. I just I'd like to see it. I'd like to play it if they could actually develop one, and, and just see what kind of response it would get. How much. Would it help? I mean, is it a way to kind of throw somebody into the fire to teach them how to investigate without actually having them out there, you know, taking risks in the field? I don't know. No demonology video games, though. I don't think. Plenty of demons in video games. There is there's ridiculous amounts of demons in video games. I mean, (laughs) but the horror genre is something that video games will always go to because of a the huge crossover audience, and b you can do things in video games that are a lot easier to do in that format than it is to do in movies so somebody that has these ideas and this creativity geared toward that field might be better off moving into video games where it's a little bit easier to create than trying to come up with a way to put these ideas on film
1: well they already do put these ideas on film like what you were talking the resident evil films mm-hmm. or you can you but know, that's only
2: because of the popularity of the games that they've they've done that okay i mean resident evil was a piece of crap movie <laughs> <laughs> so, same thing, what's that other one? Silent Hill. Another yeah. one. Piece of crap movie. movie. Yeah,
1: well uh there's a number of them that they've done recently over Doom the Doom was really bad.
2: Doom was bad. I saw like five minutes of that yesterday. You know, it's funny, there's very few
1: What was the one with the animation? Um Which one? I it's I'm drawing a blank on the on the name. It was CG.
2: CG. Um I'm not sure. Based uh, on a video game? Yeah. uh yeah
1: they had Ben Affleck's character but it was actually a Baldwin that was his voice.
2: Well, there's been very few um there's been very few video game to movie adaptations that have been worthwhile. Uh starting with like Mario Brothers, you know, piece of crap. Um Double Dragon. Double Dragon, but uh I mean we're coming up on the news so we can rattle off a few more to kill two minutes but There are just so many of them that were... Yeah, Street Fighter, but every once in a while there are some... Mortal
1: Kombat. That one wasn't too bad. Yeah, that actually wasn't bad as far as... The second one
2: wasn't too bad. Can you think of, uh, in in the minute and a half that we have left, can you think of a good video game movie? Yeah, Hmm. exactly. I really can't think of any, but they all seem to make enough money. They must because they come out with sequels to them. So, I don't know, maybe somebody can come up with one. uh, Tomb Raider. Too ah. good call. <laughs> that was go. a good movie. I didn't see the second one, but the first movie was Anything good. with
1: Angelina Jolie's got my vote.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, there we go. That's our little riff on video games. Uh, we're not joined by Nolan Bushnell. We'll figure out what happened. We'll put this show together for some time in the future, because we definitely want to get him on as a guest. Uh, it'll definitely be an honor to talk to him. Uh, but coming up in the second hour, after the CBS News, we'll Final you-
1: Fantasy. That was the name.
2: I didn't see the movie. Sorry. It's like a movie in itself, that game. But anyway, we'll, we'll retire video games for tonight because we know people want to share their thoughts and feelings on the moon landing. Was it a hoax? Was it faked? Did Neil Armstrong really step on the moon? Did Buzz Aldrin? He's liable to punch in your face if you, if you say that he didn't. And
1: he actually did punch somebody. Exactly, in the face. yeah. <laughs>
2: There's a video of it on YouTube. So, But uh, we will take the news break, then we'll come back with our news, The Week and Weird. And then on the other side, the Apollo moon landing. So stay tuned here on Spooky South Coast.
1: You asked for it, you got it. And this is Spooky
0: South Coast
1: Volume 2. I
0: can smell your am not afraid. You.
2: Super or something that is just a post high Good evening, welcome to Spooky South Coast, hour number two. Tim Weisberg here, alongside with Matt Costa, the Silent Assassin, and Matt Moniz, the Science Advisor. And uh, we just had a great first hour talking about our video game memories and what we learned from them. Um, I don't know, maybe Nolan Bushnell got the times mixed up and he'll call in an hour number two, but if not, we will talk with you about the Apollo moon landing. Was it real or was it a hoax? Uh, We will talk about that in a few minutes, but uh, we have to let you know about something because this is the time in the show when we plug stuff especially stuff involving us. First of all, if you're listening to us on podcast and you, you don't know yet, WBSM and Spooky South Coast are now streaming live every Saturday night. So you can go to com or WBSM.com, and you can pick up the live feed. We're also broadcasting on PlanetParanormal.com as well, and we're hoping to sign on with some other paranormal radio websites. Uh, if you listen to a paranormal radio website that doesn't carry Spooky South Coast, well, why not email them? Uh, tell them they can get a hold of us at SpookyCrew at spooky com, and uh, we will find a way to hook up and get on that site as well. But uh, one of the other things that we did this week, uh, we actually went, Matt Koss and myself were guests on Ghosts Are Near, Keith Johnson's uh, internet, I'm sorry, uh, cable access program that airs at a Cox Cable in Rhode Island and is put up on the internet on Google Video and on their website nearparanormal.com. Matt Moniz had been a guest already and Uh, They decided that they, for some reason, wanted to have myself and the Silent Assassin on there. So uh, we don't have the the insight and the experience that Matt Moniz does, but uh, I think we we put on a pretty funny episode anyway.
1: You guys did very well.
2: Thank you. I know that uh, Sandra said it was one of the funniest episodes it ever had, so I said, well, you know, I can't imagine that people coming on here to promote the paranormal in a serious and scientific manner would crack as many jokes as myself and the silent assassin did we just yeah. kind of went a little overboard with some <laughs> some stuff but it should be a very entertaining show nonetheless uh it they, should be. they said it should be up uh in a few days uh, up on the website matt what did you think about your uh your experience doing television we've done the penny well, dreadful show before but this was a real a real live talk show
3: as, as with the penny dreadful show i was wondering why they would want to talk to us exactly because i mean who are we we're schlubs <laughs> but uh i was Im- I was impressed I was in awe of the studio. it was actually a real studio mm-hmm. it was in somebody's basement you like thought in it was Wayne's a, World? yeah Wayne's World. but uh <laughs> i don't the, know it was it was a lot of fun I enjoyed it
2: and the fine camera work of matt Moniz on on camera the outstanding yes, yes. he was doing the 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 close ups and everything Did you, the extreme so close up we we wanted to try to get you, yeah do the extreme close up and you know then uh we were gonna we were gonna tell Keith that we didn't think ghosts are are real and we to- we thought they were totally you know, bull crap, and he was wasting his time. And then when he was like, really, we're going to do fish You know, <laughs> We're making references to Wayne's World. I'm sure like half of our audience doesn't even remember Wayne's World, and the other half never even saw it. So, But that's okay. This is what we do here. We talked about video games for a whole hour, so <laughs> we can certainly talk about Wayne's World for 30 seconds. So, uh, yeah, so stay tuned to nearparanormal.com. If you live in Rhode Island, stay tuned to Cox uh, Cable, and uh, they will remember to pay your bill because you know what happens if you don't. But pay attention to Cox Cable, and uh, we should be on Ghost or Near in the coming weeks uh, and on the website nearparanormal.com even sooner. And when it goes up on the video, uh, they've already given us permission. We can link up to it on spookysouthcoast.com so you can pay attention there as well. So uh, that takes care of the self-promotion aspect. Uh, I don't think we can try to sell anything else tonight, so why don't we just uh, get a little weird?
0: More bad news. Well, i got a great show for you today with some wonderful weird stuff. Yeah, gotta be, gotta be to the I feel, I feel so very weird.
2: <laughs> the Week in Weird. And our first story is a great story if you're new to the paranormal field. Uh, If you're just listening to the show for the first time or you're just starting to get into the paranormal and you're interested in learning a little bit more about paranormal investigation, this story is a really good one to check out for a a nice summary of what goes on. It's a little bit lengthy for me to read the entire thing here in the week and weird, but it's on CNET News. So uh, we'll try to put a link up to it on SpookySouthCoast.com so you can check out the whole story. It was written by Elsa Wenzel of CNET News. When Sharon Leong conducts fieldwork, she packs a digital camera, a thermometer, and an electromagnetic field meter. She isn't a private detective or an electrician. She's a secretary by day and an avid ghost hunter by night. Those gizmos and many others in Toes, Leong treks to reputedly haunted homes, battlefields, bars, and hotels, gathering what she thinks may be evidence of a world beyond this earthly one. The pursuit of ghostly evidence has been popular for centuries. Now, instead of Ouija boards, ghost hunters are increasingly turning to high-tech gear, to assist in their search. Ghost hunters rely upon digital equipment to document potential signs of hauntings. Cameras and voice recorders pick up eerie sights and sounds, while handheld gadgets measure EMF, um, sorry, electromagnetic radiation and odd drops in temperature. Jumpsuits like those from the movies Ghostbusters are unnecessary, but pocket-laden cargo pants and fishing jackets are handy for stashing all of the gear. Hobbyists likely own find equipment either in pedestrian electronic shops or at custom online emporiums such as Ghost Mart. Although most of the equipment is built for ordinary purposes, others are clearly targeted at amateur ghost hunters. Complete kits can be ordered ranging between $250 and $2,000. Social networking web tools enable ghost hunters to hook up via large web communities such as MySpace and on niche sites including I Am Haunted. Live chatting blogs and user videos on that site attract 30,000 monthly visitors and several dozen new members each day. Wow, we should get our I Am Haunted site back up, huh, Costa? It should. Again, that many people. Some Ghost Hunt Club websites offer real-time haunted cams of notorious locales, and YouTube has become a warehouse for tens of thousands of videos claiming to show lonely ghouls and other apparitions, such as the one that Matt Moniz captured at Waverly Hills, which is available on YouTube. The craze has even reached the iPod. Apple iTunes lists more than a 1,000 paranormal podcasts, none of them as good as this one that you're listening to right now. It says that actually in the story. It's a spooky South Coast, number one with a bullet. So, uh, also, paranormal pastimes have grown in popularity in the last decade, along with sitcoms. It's not a sitcom. NBC's medium and reality shows like Ghost Hunters on the sci-fi channel. Have you seen that one? Ghost Hunters? Yeah. I'll try to remember to tape (laughs) it. They attract millions of viewers. MTV produces a celebrity paranormal project, and Discovery Channel airs a haunting. Web promotion for the Travel Channel's Most Haunted Program offers an application that turns a phone into an EMF detector, which is full of crap. That doesn't say that in the story, but I just want you to know that. So there's a lot more information about some of the things that go on, but this was interesting. The deceased apparently need technical help to talk. The $70 Belfry Bat Detector picks up ultrasonic sounds. So that's something that you can look into. Have you ever tried to use one of those Monies, a, a Belfry Bat Detector? No. Can't say I have. Yeah, it's it's interesting. We'll have to look into it. Maybe a Belfry wants to send us one to test. So, uh, But we'll wrap up the story. Uh, Again, it it gives the whole history of paranormal investigation. It's very uh, intense and very uh, intensive, I mean, and very uh, informational. But we'll wrap it up with some comments from our friend Jeff Belanger, who runs GhostVillage.com, who has written several books on the paranormal. He agrees that ghost hunting equipment lends a sense of credibility to something that cannot be measured. As much as some organizations and individuals try to strip out the esoteric and spiritual and bring it down to pure science, it's not always possible because you're looking for something beyond our understanding of the universe, so true that Jeff, true that. All right, Matt Costa, what do you have for us?
3: This is from uh, Madam Curie sixty-eight on the message board. Local, hey, Gabby. <laughs> local Indian children attending a school located in a graveyard were having reoccurring nightmares about ghosts and have appealed to authorities to shift them from the site. This week, hundreds of school children school hundreds of children at the school in the eastern state of Bihar. Accompanied by their parents marched to the office of a senior district official, asking for the school to be shifted away from the Muslim graveyard. About 200 children studied in the makeshift school set up years ago after authorities refused to donate land for a school. Some parents say their children's sleep and health is being affected by dreams of ghosts. They used to play and study together and finish their their lunchboxes while sitting on top of the concrete graves, but now the ghosts have come to haunt them at night and they are falling ill one father said there are more than a hundred tombs in the graveyard but dozens of fresh graves most of them shallow have been dug in recent months further crowding the burial ground authorities in the densely popu- populated Bihar said they were trying to provide land, new land for the school but it is hard to say when and where it will be so that's
2: it's kind of like that Nightmare on Elm Street 4 or 5 whichever one where it was Carrying through the entire house. It might scene.
3: have been four or four and four.
2: Or five. every one of them, pretty much. But, I mean, uh doesn't really jibe with a lot of we hear about paranormal investigation. Not a lot of, uh, you know, coming to get you in your dreams type of hauntings. That, I could see uh, why it gives you nightmares. Yes. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you're a kid and you don't understand what's going on, sure.
3: That
1: only stands to reason, common sense. I mean, they seem cool with it. They're eating the lunch on the
2: Yeah. Tools. Yeah, but still. I mean, out of all the ideas of, you know, where to build stuff. You know, All
1: the things that happened in a cemetery, I don't think he's one of the sure.
3: worst. <laughs>
2: hey, well, you know, Disneyland was built on a swamp, and that worked out, so. All right, Matt Moniz, tell us about some interesting developing, developments down at Area 51.
1: comes from Channel 8 in Las Vegas. Something big is in the works in Nevada's legendary Area 51 military base. A massive new building is under construction at top-secret location. Aviation experts say that there's a good chance that a new, highly classified aircraft might soon be zipping around the Nevada skies. What kind of aircraft? One possibly is the successor to the SR-71 spy plane, the SR-72. The SR-71 Blackbird is widely regarded as the greatest airplane ever built. It sliced through the sky at Mark 3 and still reigns, officially anyway as the fastest plane in history. A photo of the new building under construction at Area 51 has raised tantalizing possibilities for civilian researchers who dabble in such topics. No one can say for certain what the building will be used for, but aviation historian Peter Merlin said, one thing is for sure, we can say that it is one big hangar.
2: That's what a lot of people say about me. True. True. <laughs>
1: I'll leave that as it is. It possibly measures 275 feet by 600 feet. It's no larger than hangars at other bases, but certainly is the largest at Area 51, Peter Merlin said. Satellite photos confirm Area 51 already has two dozen hangars, including some less than two years old. So, what's going on out there? Peter Merlin says he's been told by engineers at Lockheed that the SR-72 project was canceled, but new reports in the aviation media note that the Air Force has just awarded a new contract to Lockheed for a plane that sounds exactly like the SR-72, a Mach 6 reconnaissance airplane that could also carry weapons. Unlike the SR-71, this one would be unmanned. It would be possible for it to make a comfy fit inside the hangar says Merlin, but he thinks that there are other possibilities also at work at Groom Lake. Among the suspects is something called the Black Manta, a stealthy hypersonic craft that might explain the wispy images captured in a few photos around the world. Various black triangle type aircraft have been spotted all over American military bases and cities for years, some of them huge in size and big enough to require a big hangar. Aviation journalist Bill Sweetman has long argued for the existence of the Aurora, another plane rumored to have been flown at Groom Lake. Sweetman says black budget figures hint at the existence of the plane, which some have dubbed the SR-75 penetrator. Whichever these uh, ambitious projects ends up in full development, it is abundantly clear that the testing location of choice Is for top secret planes Is still Area 51 The Lockheed company whose So called skunk work plants Developed the U-2, the SR-71 And a cell fighter All of which are test flown out of Area 51 Says it will not comment on it's new Air Force contract And of course The Air Force is not talking either
2: I know it's in the hangar What would that be? Ernie Box plane
1: he actually has a nice hanger.
2: That's why they, they he flew out to Area 51, and they don't want everybody to know that there are any box out there because they will create a, a huge you know media storm. Considering his uh, his Emmy-worthy performance on Rescue Me this week. Really? Yeah, he was on Rescue Me again. He played the no speaking lines this time. He played the uh, the coach of the police officers' hockey team. So all he really did was like wring his hands and like throw his hands up in disgust and and. Fain like he was upset so good acting was, by Ernie I, I was very Ernie impressed is very
1: cool you know, you know what else is also in the uh, Area 51 hangars it's also known for the Red Hat hangars it's where they acquired all of the former Soviet MiGs and they trained ah. against the other American planes in the at the Nellis range that's where they they host shall I say and the other foreign planes
2: kudos to them for the creative name SR-72 successor to yeah. <laughs> SR-71 very impressive All right, so that is the Week and Weird for this week. Remember, if you have a Week and Weird story you'd like to submit to us, you can do so by going to the message board at SpookySouthCoast.com, clicking on the Week and Weird room there, dropping the story in there, put in the whole story or put in a link or whatever you want to do. If we use the story, we will not only give you full credit, but you will win a Spooky South Coast bumper sticker, just as Gabby has done tonight. So we'll take a break. On the other side, we're going to talk to you about the Apollo moon landing And a whole lot more here on Spooky South Coast.
0: Lost civilizations. Extraterrestrials. Myths and monsters. Missing persons magic and witchcraft unexplained phenomena
2: for 58 years fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown fate is a factual magazine containing articles by experts in all walks of life and by others just like you who have had something dynamic significant and truthful to say keep up with the latest on all aspects of the paranormal angels and miracles psychic phenomena ghosts ufos and much much more to subscribe, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at Fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Contact
3: right. Okay, Andrew, stop.
0: Listen, uh Tranquility Base here. Eagle has landed. Rogers, Tranquility. We copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. That's Eagle 11. It's one small step for man, I one giant leap for mankind.
2: All right, welcome back to Spooky South Coast. We are talking about the Apollo moon landing. Was it a hoax? Was it real? And uh, were Neil Armstrong's first words really one small step for man, one small, one giant leap for mankind? Or was it, ladies and gentlemen, rock and roll? And then Buzz, Buzz Aldrin came out with the guitar. Dan, 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 dan. No, I don't think that's what really happened. That's the way I remember seeing it, though, on TV, when I was the same age you were when you saw the real Apollo moon landing. Kind of weird, you know, July 20th, 1969, the first moon landing, August 1st, 1981, MTV debuts, so kind of close in in time there to the anniversary, but I digress. Uh, We talked about it a little bit at the top of the show, but the Apollo moon landing, uh, again, 38 years ago yesterday, and to this day there are still a number of people that do not believe that it happened. Uh, it's it's strange but true that there are a number of people that think that it was a hoax. The Apollo moon landing hoax accusations are claims that some or all elements of the moon landings were faked by NASA and possibly members of other involved organizations. Uh, some groups and individuals have advanced alternate historical narratives, which tend to varying degrees to include the following common elephants uh, elements. Common elephants. The Apollo astronauts did not land on the moon. That's one of the arguments that they make. Uh, another argument is that they did land on the moon, but the footage that we saw was controlled in a studio because we didn't want the Soviets or others to actually see what was on the moon. We thought we would keep a strategic advantage by knowing lunar geography and the like while the Soviets were kept in the dark. Uh, And then some of the other claims are that we did land on the moon uh, with unmanned missions, planted some evidence there to make it look like we were there, and then faked the whole thing in the studio. So, I don't know. Moniz, what do you think? As a, as a scientist and as a, an observer, what do you think actually happened?
1: Well, somebody had to go there or something had to go there to bring the lunar rocks back. Mm-hmm. We know scientifically from testing them you know, that these are genuine lunar, lunar rocks. Uh, can I say that? I know definitively what I watched when I was a kid, that this was from the moon. Well, I, I really can't say I know for sure.
2: There were six man-moon landings that were carried out between 1969 and 1972, and then the Soviet Union had a number of unmanned missions following that. So it's possible that one of these missions did have man, you know, man did step foot on the moon at some point. But the 1969 one, I mean, can we definitively say that it really happened?
1: Uh, we can say that a mission did leave. Whether it actually contained astronauts and went there, don't know.
2: Well, I mean, there's, there's a number of different websites dedicated to the idea that this is a hoax. And what they do is they take a lot of bit, uh, a lot of the video that's been shown and a lot of the photos that were taken, and they say, "Gee, you know, look, you can see the wires here,"
1: or that this lighting angle is wrong for this, or if you play. It- one-third faster, you actually wind up at the same speed and uh, stuff that we walk around with now, you know, uh, here on Earth. Now uh, one, yeah.
2: of, one of the claims is that the Van Allen radiation belts would have made a trip to the moon at that time impossible. Do you know anything about the Van Allen radiation yeah, Van belts? Allen,
1: the Van Allen belt is a big, gigantic electromagnetic girdle that goes around the Earth and extends part way out to the moon. Um would it affect them? Yeah. But th- like I said, these are also the same people that went out and were walking in space and you know, making these other uh, heroic steps in orbit and stuff like that. It's no different than any other risk that they were already taking. Uh, plus, going through uh, certain phases of it, you can alter the ship's angle to expose shielding that would... Mm. Help prevent you from getting too much exposure and this and that, and the belt, if i 'm not mistaken, is actually also not all that big to start with it 's a concentrated belt that 's measurable but not uh, you would have they would have to be parked there in orbit for it to significantly to affect them and their equipment
2: well I mean what reason would they have for faking the moon landing? Why would they perpetrate this hoax and, and keep it under wraps for for thirty eight years? Uh, some of the possible suggestions are. You know, for one, Cold War prestige. They wanted to uh, beat the Russians to the moon, and he, they might not have been. Well, all right, let, let's backtrack a little bit. What did John F. Kennedy promise in, in 1960?
1: To get, to get a man on the moon before the decade. Before end. the end of the decade. That's one of the things that they claim is they they put this forward to fulfill his words and prophecy.
2: Uh, there was only, only a, a few months left in the decade to pull it off, so. It seemed like as good a time as any. Now, another another thing, and this is something that I well, read somewhere.
1: Well, I don't mean to interrupt you, sure. but technically they were actually supposed to have made a launch there a couple of years prior.
2: That just didn't work out?
1: Yeah, there, there were other technical issues, uh, you know, one being um, obviously the fires that they had mm-hmm. and, and stuff like that. that. That put things off for a year or two, what? and... A number of other factors.
2: One of the craziest claims that I read somewhere was the reason why it was done in August is because, I mean in uh, July is because the new television season didn't start rolling out until August, late August and they figured late July uh, people would be on vacation and uh, it would be a good time of any to put something on TV that might not have been 100% genuine because less people would have been watching it. Are you kidding me? Less people would have been watching The First Man on the Moon no matter what time of year it was they would have record-breaking, 100% share audiences. So I don't know why that argument would even be discussed.
1: I think it had more to do with lunar position than anything else, maximization mm-hmm. of the, the lunar orbit.
2: But, I mean, uh, in terms of perpetrating a hoax, they, they they wouldn't try to pick a good time slot for it, you know what I mean? Uh, another theory is that they did it for money. NASA raised approximately $30 billion to go to the moon. Uh, some people say that that could have been actually used to pay off a large number of people to provide significant motivation for complicity and uh, you know another thing too is you know, is there some sort of secret projects that nasa is actually just a front for Is a lot of this money that's being filtered into nasa being used in other areas of of government work be it secret defense projects be it you know anything
1: uh, that, that's already known and given uh, they they have black budget money uh, you can look that up in in the public records that uh, there's there's no of saying or buts about that. NASA does receive black budget
2: money. Uh, another reason why some people think that this is a hoax is that uh, it was a distraction uh, to take people's attention away from the Vietnam War. Uh, when I'm looking here. According to hoax proponents, the U.S. government benefited from a popular distraction from the Vietnam War. Lunar activities suddenly stopped with planned missions canceled around the same time that the U.S. ceased its involvement in the Vietnam War. However, the Apollo program was canceled several years before the Vietnam War ended. So I, I, it seems kind of a big uh, a big jump. I mean, how much of a distraction is it going to be, you know, a couple of weeks to take people's minds off one of the most significant wars that was ever fought in human history?
1: Um, it, uh, it's a poor distraction if there is a yeah, That's that what is. I'm
2: saying. I mean... How long would it last? I mean, it's, think about it today. I mean, if we did something like that today, how much would it take people's attention away from Iraq? Not very long, especially not in today's, you know, media-savvy culture. But a year after the first landing, night Newspapers conducted a poll of 1,721 U.S. citizens and found that more than 30% of all the poll's respondents were suspicious of NASA's trips to the moon, with a number rising to over half in some de- uh, demographic areas. There was a Newsweek article published that the poll results noted that among the respondents were, quote, an elderly Philadelphia woman who thought the moon landing had been staged in an Arizona desert and a, quote, housewife whose suspicions were based on her belief that her television could, quote, not receive signals from the moon. So in a 1999 Gallup poll, about 6% of the population in the United States had doubts that the Apollo astronauts walked on the moon. 5% had no opinion, while 89% believed that the landings did take place. Uh, a 1995 poll also found that 6% of the people did believe in the hoax, not really helped by Fox Television's 2001 TV conspiracy theory, did we really land on the moon, which has kind of given boost to this theory. So, And all this information, by the way, and it's not the most accurate source, but it comes from the Wikipedia entry, Apollo moon hoax. As I said, the number two website on the Apollo moon landing, besides the actual official documented information. Now... You've seen, Matt, all the photographs that were taken on the moon. Uh, You've seen all the video that was filmed up there. Is there anything that's anomalous in in your mind that makes you say, wait a minute?
1: In terms of Apollo 11 being a hoax? Yes,
2: just anything that that happened uh, during it that you're like, okay, I can see here why people might think this?
1: I I think some of the lighting has got me a bit curious, but... um Bear in mind, you're dealing with black and white, Mm -hmm. and you're also dealing with an environment where there is no atmosphere. So refraction and reflection play entirely different. It's a different set of optics and optical physics uh, when it comes to light uh, on a place like the moon versus the earth. There are a number of different factors. Um, But like I said, some of the lighting differences uh, has got me wondering, but... Not enough to where I could say, yeah, this is definitely not right. This is a hoax. And there's also tons more footage that we don't have access to. Now, to me, if you're going to hoax something, why are you going to hold on to 10,000 hours worth of, you know?
2: I, I I can tell you part of the reason why, at least what they're claiming uh, for why they, they are holding on to some of that footage. They actually lost some of it. Uh, a great deal of the footage is actually missing. They've uh, they've come out and said I think it was in 2006 they came out and said that a number of the footage that they're looking for they said it earlier but I mean now they're they're saying you know we've looked around we can't find it you know it's like when you say hey where's that home movie that we took with grandma before oh, she died I don't know where it is not
1: lost well, you're dealing with material that has chains of custody of chains of custody
2: there is uh, there's a website too dedicated to trying to find some of this. Uh, some of this lost footage and, and seeing if they can find it. I'm trying to find the section here in my notes uh, on the actual footage so I can tell you about it a little bit more, but there was a, a great deal of it that's supposedly missing. Uh, one of the things with the photos, too, is they've been analyzed by a number of experts, and they say one of, the, one of the things is that the quality of the photographs is impossibly high. Well, that's just because you're seeing the good photos.
1: No, they had some very, very... They, th- that was the first serious usage of uh, high resolution film uh, actually some of it digital first high resolution digital as well as back then
2: uh, but even now though you know we, we toss out the photos that suck and we keep the ones that are good you know it, it makes sense uh you know there are no stars in any of the photos you know
1: okay and like i said you're going back to the optics and yes there are some stars that can be seen in some of the uh video and things like that has to do with the properties of the atmosphere. What we, what we see in terms of the stars in our sky are actually magnified due to our atmosphere. That's why we see them as big and as bright as we do here on Earth. It's totally different in a place that is devoid of an atmosphere. There's no lensing effect. <laughs> this, like,
2: it's, it's, it's exactly, you know, you're ba- you haven't even read these notes, and you're no. basically given the same type of analysis as these photos. Yeah, it's, it's it's
1: gave It's basic physics.
2: No, one of these, this this is a great one. A resident of Perth, Australia, using the pseudonym Una Ronald, said she saw a soft drink bottle in the frame. No such reports have ever been recorded or verified. Uh, the story is authenticated only by one source. There are also flaws in the story. Emphatic statement that she had to, quote, stay up late to see this. I can't believe that, that at that time they would actually buy into this woman saying she saw a soft drink bottle. You know, we see the strings. People say they see the strings in, in some of these photos. It's just its ridiculous some of the, the lengths people have gone to to discredit what is grainy, hard-to-decipher footage as it is. Exactly. Now, working with some of the the video that we've seen, uh, what they have released to us, and what they have showed to us, does it seem a little bit odd to you, the motions that they make? I mean, knowing what you know about gravity and physics. Uh, a lot of people say that if you speed the Film up 50%. It just looks said. like they're walking. Or
1: one-third looks like they're walking, yes. Now, I think that has to do with the combination of the rate at which these cameras recorded and broadcast. Don't forget there's a delay. Mm-hmm. The moon is roughly 260,000 miles uh, away from Earth on an on average distance. Light travels at approximately 186,000 miles per second. So that means that, you know, you would have about a second and a half worth of delay, given the time, you know, to be broadcast, come to Earth, go through whatever filters they got at their receiving stations, and then further broadcast by the stations out, and then your TV takes a signal, and then, you know, there's a lot of delay going on. And it's only sending bits of information at a time to start with. So, yeah, you're going to, it's going to look slowed down and de- choppy and delayed. And each station, as it goes along, you're going to lose resolution of what you see. Just like uh, make, making a photo of a copy of a photocopy of a photocopy.
2: Which is how we get all these show notes to you before everything It does say, uh, you know, some of these notes do point out the, the difference in the gravity and the difference in the distance. Uh, but the, one of the videos that I saw had some interesting footage of both apollo 11 and later missions uh there was one i forget exactly which apollo mission it was one of the astronauts fell down and he asked for the other guy to help him up and you can actually see when he's pulled up it looks like he's being pulled up from wires from behind i mean to me when i saw it it looked like that is the footage real is it the actual nasa footage that i'm seeing on that video who knows it could be a fraud that's put up on youtube but it's it's really interesting to see the way that they are moved, and it does look like it could be cables taking some of that weight off them.
1: It's not, uh, what are they dressed in? They're dressed in a spacesuit. Mm-hmm. Now, the spacesuit that they're in is pressurized to keep them alive. What, he, what you're dealing with, as well as uh, the reduced gravity, is the amount of pressure in the suit. Once he gets his knees unbuckled, you know from where he's bent over backwards like that, the pressure all of a sudden now rushes into the bottom where his boots are, and that's going to make him you know stand straight up you're in a you're in an inflated suit so you're gonna snap up like you're being pushed or pulled up by you know um, strength for all intensive purposes all
2: right, well i i am actually I found the section here where it talks about the missing tapes, and I'll just give you an idea of what's actually missing uh it is the they, they recorded with a slow-scan television or a SSTV camera. In order to be broadcast to regular television, a scan conversion has to be done. The Radio Telescope at Park's Observatory, similar to what you're talking about, was in position to receive the telemetry from the moon at the time of the Apollo 11 moonwalk.
1: Was that in Australia? Yep. Okay.
2: And uh, it talks about how uh, some of these telemetry tapes went missing, and that's what they're saying that they can't find. It's not like it's it's, you know going to blow the whole lid off this thing if they find these tapes according to what nasa is claiming
1: this data telemetry i'm sorry data telemetry
2: i just i'm just reading telemetry i don't i don't know what the what the difference is
1: Uh, it's just um that would be the the raw signal that came from the lander itself uh it's a camera and it would probably have uh Several other channels buried or encoded into it that would have their their bios, in other words, all of their medical monitoring, other sub-channels, monitoring the systems of the crafts, both the lander and the orbiter, uh, as well as other communications and stuff. The telemetry is all of the signals that are being broadcast and sent back and forth.
2: What's up with the flag? What do you mean? There's no wind. and It's waving in the wind.
1: Well supposedly it's uh it's semi metallic or whatever, and it it unfolded out from what I'm told mm-hmm. um, it's it was more kinetic energy is the what it was explained to me when they opened it up that's why it's waving so so to speak it's just a reaction of it being unfurled
2: and there was some sort of uh, some sort of uh rods placed in it to keep it stiff and outright, correct yeah. So, I mean, because a lot of people have said, well, look at the flag. It it's, looks like it's been fixed to stay that way. Well, of course it has. It's not going to flop. Right. Gonna, it's, not
1: flap. Is, right. Uh, it's got all of these. Uh, oh, the person I know that had something similar where they had the same kind of flag that they put on the moon. There's a bunch of these, like, little fine uh, wire rods
2: in it. I, I can give you uh, something a little bit more earthbound that's probably similar. Pipe cleaners. Yeah, from remember when we were kids and we yeah. used pipe cleaners to hold stuff up? S- something
1: similar to that mm-hmm. thin thin wires. And what happens if you take you know a car antenna and you you wrap it? It it vibrates. Mm-hmm. Same idea when you unfold it, so it makes it look like it's waving in the wind.
2: And speaking of which, I've never actually seen somebody use a pipe cleaner to clean a pipe. But why don't we take this call here? Pipe cleaner industry supported by elementary schools. Good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast. How you doing?
0: Good evening. Uh, am I speaking with some TV stars?
2: Oh, you are. Yes, well...
0: I want to thank you for being such an excellent guest on our show, Ghost on Near the other night.
2: Well, we thank you for having us. Yeah,
0: you made a great appearance, and can hardly wait to see you on the screen there.
2: Well, we're, what we're going to do is we're going to start telling people that you actually faked our appearance, kind of like NASA faked the moon landing.
0: Oh, yeah, I, I did know, notice uh, your shirt was kind of uh, ruffling like that, kind of, <laughs> with, uh, the pipe cleaners you had in... The,
2: No, that's not the pipe cleaners in my shirt. It's just the pipes. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So, no, we thank you very much for having us, and and we're glad that uh, Matt and I could come up with a a half an hour of interesting discussion since, you know, we're we're pretty much dying out here tonight.
0: (laughs) Well, I I think it's pretty interesting about you mentioned the kinetic energy with the flag, and uh, I think that's probably what it was, the vibration.
2: Well, uh, Keith, you must have had a chance to see this uh when it happened yes uh, what, what was going through your mind what did you think uh when with the apollo moon landing happened what, what was your excitement level what was the the interest that that you and your family paid to this
0: we, we were all thrilled that it was actually happening and we we're praying that they get home safe and everything and we were just amazed that gee there's men right up there and of course when i was a small child that was my dream of being the first person on the moon and i, I didn't make it but uh I, I was thrilled. We were all thrilled. Uh, I remember it was just, just mutual, mutual excitement. And uh, I remember watching the news. They were interviewing people all over the country on, what do you think of this? And there was one elderly woman that was interviewed. What do you think about men going on the moon? I guess she was in Washington, D.C. Is that what they're doing
2: now? It's
0: like the first she'd heard of it. You know.
2: Well, I mean, it, you never doubted the validity of what, of what NASA was telling you? No. No, I never did. I and, never did. and even today, with all this conspiracy theory that's that's come out of the woodwork, it doesn't doesn't make you question what went on at all.
0: Yeah, right. And you know, there's is there's is going to be that about everything, everything. You know, there's going to be conspiracy about about every major event. Did it really happen? What's the validity of it, and everything?
2: Especially with a group like NASA, that's kind of known to cover up some stuff here and there, anyway. Exactly,
0: exactly. But hey, so they, the the footprints must still be up there, right? So.
2: Well, they're having trouble seeing it with telescopes. I know that uh, I read some some information where a number of high power telescopes have tried to see the the you know the stuff they left behind the lunar module stuff they left behind mm-hmm. the flag footprints anything like that. They're having trouble finding on some of the world's most powerful telescopes. So, mm-hmm. I mean, are won't...
1: the telescopes capable of zooming in on them? Well, that's what I was going to say. It's a little difficult, not so much because of the lunar's uh, issues. It, like, it has to do with our atmospheres. Mm-hmm.
2: Now, Well, one thing, Matt, that, that I found interesting is uh, I found one video that talked about how Neil Armstrong wore a Masonic apron while he was on the moon with a Mason symbol in the middle of it. And that uh, his father was a 33rd degree Mason back in Ohio. Buzz Aldrin was a 32nd degree Mason at the time of the landing. Uh, I, I didn't watch the whole thing because, quite frankly, I was kind of uh, not really that interested in whatever it was he was trying to present. Uh, they talked about all the Masons that were in NASA at the time and, and, and gathering them all together afterwards for a, a special debriefing and uh, any kind of, similar, any kind of uh, significance to the idea of many astronauts, Gordon Cooper, uh, some of these guys being Masons and what that would have to do with any kind of conspiracy. <laughs> what I'm asking you is, have the Masons told you yet since you have joined that the moon landing was faked?
0: I've never heard that the moon landing was faked by masons or anyone. That's, it, that's just a conspiracy theory, and uh,
2: it's it's a most extreme conspiracy theory. I believe. Yes, yes, it Let's is. Let's keep There's blaming very, those guys for everything.
0: Yes, but then again, we have and to wonder, as we were saying, is Paul really dead? So you know,
2: that's true. But well, that ever, ever, ever since Moniz joined the Freemasons, though, the the conspiracy theories have just gone through the roof. So, well, Keith, thanks for for checking in and, and sharing your thoughts with us. And thanks for having us oh, in, in your studio. Oh, you're very welcome.
0: Very welcome. And, and, again, you guys were great guests, and we can't wait to have you on again.
2: All right. We're going to have you back here soon, too.
0: All right. That'll be great. And if you
1: ever need another cameraman, give me a holler. Certainly will. He,
2: he, certainly and make sure best. you have a director that can tell him what to do. Because <laughs> we don't get a chance to hear. So. No. All right. Thanks, Keith. We'll talk to you All soon. All right. Thanks, guys. Take, Take care. care now. Well, one thing I wanted to ask you, Matt, is uh, we, we've talked about this in the past, uh, and we've got about seven minutes to go here. There's a number of deaths with kind of mysterious circumstances around a number of key Apollo personnel. And I'm just going to go through a list here. I have a list literally of about 25, 30 names. Uh, but I'm going to I'm going to go through a number of them here. Uh, Ted Freeman died in a T-38 crash. Uh, Elliot C. and Charlie Bassett, T-38 accident. Uh, Virgil Gus Grissom, uh, Apollo 1 fire. his son Scott Grissom, said the accident was a murder. Uh, Ed White, Apollo 1 fire, Roger Chaffee, Apollo 1 fire, Uh, Ed Gibbons car accident, C.C. Williams' T-38 accident. There's just a number of deaths and, uh, you know, almost all of them accidental, some sort of crash of different things tied into the Apollo program. Was there something beyond simply getting to the moon around this Apollo program that made it so dangerous?
1: No, you're dealing with people. Ninety percent of them, I believe, are crashes. Well, with the mm-hmm. exception of Chaffee White and um, Gus Grissom. They, that was the fire that happened on the launch pad. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, the re- the remainder were all uh, aviation crashes, mainly the T-38 trainer that was used uh, by the Air Force and still in use today to train uh, astronauts.
2: Well, one of the gentlemen who's died in association with the Apollo missions is uh, NASA worker Thomas Barron who died in an automobile collision with a train in 1967, shortly after making accusations before Congress about the cause of the Apollo 1 fire, after which he was fired from NASA, and the death was actually ruled as a suicide. He was a quality control inspector who wrote a report critical of the Apollo program and was an outspoken critic after the Apollo 1 fire. Barron and his family were killed as their car was struck by a train at a train crossing. I mean...
1: How many people are killed at train crossings to this day?
2: I, I don't have that information in front of me.
1: Oh, but, I mean, it's nothing, I know what nothing mean. uncommon. I mean, we've got busloads that get hit by a train at least once a week. You see that on the news somewhere in this country. You know, it's not just one car. It's, you know, a school bus when school's in session or or what have you. But, you know, vehicles getting hit by a bus is not a uncommon event, nor are car accidents. A lot of the astronauts that died in car accidents were... Uh, Corvette owners and they love to go fast and one thing about cars when you go fast, oak trees don't move.
2: Well, in 2002, NASA commissioned James Oberg $15,000 to write a point-by-point rebuttal of any hoax claims regarding the Apollo 11 moon landing and in the same year they cancelled that commission in the face of protests by hoax skeptics that the book would dignify the accusations. Oberg did say that he intends to finish the project eventually. Uh, And In November 2002, Peter Jennings uh, did a special for ABC's World News tonight, and he said NASA is going to spend a few thousand dollars trying to prove some people that the United States did indeed land men on the moon. Jennings said NASA had been so rattled they hired somebody to write a book refuting the conspiracy theorist. So if this James Obering does come out with this book, I mean, maybe it'll put some of the questions to rest. I mean, it might have, uh, and I just don't have up-to-date information. But some of the people that are supposedly involved in the hoax uh, gets pretty interesting. I mean, some some names that aren't necessarily familiar to people, uh, Deke Slayton, NASA's chief astronaut in 1968. Some people say that he was one of the primary leaders of the hoax, that he had visited the set of the film 2001, A Space Odyssey in the UK, which he referred to as NASA East. Now, that brings in some interesting ideas because a lot of people feel that if this was a hoax, it was orchestrated through NASA and filmmaker Stanley Kubrick. Stanley Kubrick and his younger brother, Raoul Kubrick, were reportedly accused of having produced much of the footage for the Apollo 11 and 12 missions. It's been claimed without any evidence noted here that in early 1968, while 2001 A Space Odyssey, which included scenes taking place on the moon, was in post-production, NASA secretly approached Kubrick to direct the first three moon landings. In this scenario, the scenario, the launch and splashdown would be real, but the spacecraft would have remained in Earth orbit while the fake footage was broadcast live from the lunar journey. Kubrick did hire Frederick Ordway and Harry Lang, both of whom had worked for NASA and major aerospace contractors, to work with him on 2001. Kubrick also used some 50mm f0.7 lenses that were left over from a batch made by Zeiss for NASA. And Doug Trumbull, a visual effects designer on 2001, is accused of leading the special effects team for faking the Apollo 11 and 12 missions. So, I hope he did a better job with the Apollo moon landing hoax than he did with Eyes Wide Shut. (laughs) Poor, poor Stanley Kubrick. Kubrick. By the
3: way, I blame Tom Cruise.
2: It probably was his fault. But I mean, poor Stanley Kubrick. I mean, even after he died, and he's made so many great films, we can't stop taking shots at him for Eyes Wide Shut.
1: I'm more partial to a Clockwork Orange.
2: Well, yeah. If you want to talk about good classics, I mean, I'm I'm talking about some of the stuff that was like, eh. But there you have it. Some of the names noted in the Apollo Moon hoax landing. Let's just go around the table real quick, and we got about two minutes left. Matt Moniz, Apollo moon landing, real or hoax?
1: I would have to say real till I find something absolutely more convincing that shows me otherwise.
2: And I would have to say real because I can't buy into the fact that a conspiracy like this can keep going for 38 years. It's not like we're talking about the assassination of a president here.
1: Or a crash in uh, a desert, you know, 60 years <laughs>
2: ago. Uh, Matt Costa, your thoughts on Apollo 11, hoax or real?
3: Just to go against the grain, I'm going to say it's fake.
2: Really? Well, you can direct all of your comments to Matt at spooky south dot com, and he will argue the point uh, until NASA silences him. So I, we're really hurting our chances of getting any legitimate NASA people on this program, but we'll work on it in the future. Next week we'll have something planned for you. not exactly sure how it's going to work out yet, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be taped. Well, it should be the first time ever. Exactly. But uh, So for Matt Costa from Matt Moniz, I'm Tim Weisberg. We want you all to stay spectacular.
1: I know the supernatural
0: is something that isn't supposed to happen.